Wow. A message with just mere five words began a revival. John Calvin defines the preaching of God's word in this way. Preaching is the public exposition of scripture by the man sent from God in which God himself is present in judgment and in grace. I can't find a better way to summarize Jonah 3, 1 to 5 than, than that. Jonah pronounces the shortest sermon ever given, and God himself shows up in that declaration of his word in both judgment and grace. And these few short verses contain the entire gospel message in succinct form. You see, the power of this gospel message, this good news message about Jesus Christ, is that this message of salvation, we hear the truth about God's holy anger and his loving mercy. These two concepts have to be held in tension because God's wrath and, and his judgment are proclaimed in order that his mercy and grace in Jesus Christ can be sent forth and shine all the brighter. We, we need to know and we need to speak about God's holy wrath against humanity. If we are truly going to treasure and consider precious God's grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ, then we have to take serious the fact that God is a holy God and that God is a God that hates sin and hates evil. We need to know these truths and keep them in tension. I, I like the way the preacher Stephen Lawson describes preaching. He says that preaching about God's wrath is like when a jeweler lays out a black velvet canvas on a display case and then can uh, show the splendor and dazzling brightness of the diamonds. It's upon the dark canvas that the beauty of the diamond can be fully seen. And so it is with the preaching of the message of the cross of Christ. It is upon the dark canvas of God's holy wrath that the brightness and the glory of God's grace towards sinners is most brilliantly displayed. So the truth about God's wrath enables God's grace and mercy to shine all the brighter than 10,000 suns. And I fear that it is this that is missing in so much contemporary preaching here in Europe, in Great Britain, and in North America. R.P. Hansen writes that most pe preachers and most composers of prayers today treat the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God very much like the Victorians treated sex. It's there, but it must never be alluded to because it's an undefined and shameful. God is love, therefore we must not associate with him with wrath. wrath. God is love, therefore he is indefinitely tolerant. Presumably, it is for such reason, reasons that Christian churches of the 20th century have in practice turned their backs upon the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God. You know, most churches today will give you a message of the love of God that has been stripped and robbed and filtered from the wrath of God. The problem is that we, we can never really truly grasp the love of God in Jesus Christ unless we have truly seen and felt and tasted uh, his, his grace uh, so that God's grace is hardly really distinguishable from the world around us, right? Um, 
the, the wrath of God that should rightly fall on us has fallen on our Savior. And unless we realize that, we will never appreciate uh, God's grace to us in Christ. So let's not fear to speak about the wrath of God so, so that the gospel, the message of God's redeeming grace in Christ might shine forth all the more brightly. So as we, we turn to read uh, Jonah, let's look at how the wrath of God uh, against the Ninevites is proclaimed by Jonah. So let's read these verses again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city just a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Amen. So God has something against Nineveh. Uh, we read at the very beginning of the book in, in Jonah 1, uh, verse 2, where originally he's given this assignment to go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it for their evil has come up before me. This is what the Lord says. And so the Lord sends his prophet Jonah to call out this message that I tell you. And the message is simple. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So there, there are some truths here about the righteous anger and the, the wrath of God that we ought to take into account. And the first truth is this, that God is a, is a holy God. And because he's a holy God, he hates sin. He hates wickedness. God is holy, and that means he's pure goodness. No evil, no darkness is in him at all. So even his anger and his wrath are perfectly good. Unlike our anger or our wrath, which is a blend of good and evil, mostly evil. But because God is so pure, he's set apart. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. And God is set apart from us precisely because in him is no evil. And in fact, an essential part and aspect of his moral purity is his hatred for sin. In his classic work on the attributes of God, A.W. Pink writes this about the connection between God's perfect goodness and his wrath. The wrath of God is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Now, this is what Christ experienced on the cross. The author of Hebrews speaks of our God as a consuming fire who, who burns against wickedness and evil. Uh, in Psalm 711, God, uh, David writes, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. David goes on to write in Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And perhaps most clearly in, in Psalm 5, David confesses, You, for you, are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, and you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies, and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So God is a holy God who is pure and, and without evil. But Nineveh, 
was a city full of wickedness and full of evil. And in fact, this wickedness done by the Assyrians was so vicious and awful that this is exactly why Jonah didn't want to go to them. He wasn't afraid to go to them. He didn't want to extend God's grace and mercy to them. In Jonah's mind, God should just judge them without warning. Why should he go there and even give them the chance to repent? And because of the evil in Nineveh, God had set his face against it. And so if you go back to Jonah 1, verse 2, we read that the evil of Nineveh had come up to the Lord. And, and we get this picture often in the Bible that God allows a certain amount of evil to exist before it rises to his throne. And it's out of his goodness and his justice that it becomes necessary for him to respond. And because God is a good and, and holy and because he's loving, he hates that which destroys the object of his love. He hates that which destroys the object of his love. So he hates evil. He hates wickedness. He hates sin. And God hates that which destroys what he loves. And we as parents might get a faint glimpse of God's righteous anger as we desperately really desire to protect our children for what might harm them. So if God is truly a loving God, he will also be a God of judgment and wrath. These are not opposing characteristics, as is so often argued by many that abandon the idea of hell and judgment because they say God is tolerant. Ironically, Jesus had more to say about God's wrath than anyone else in the Bible. He spoke about God's wrath significantly more than he spoke about the love of God. An early church father, Tertullian, uh, writes this against a heretic who was saying, we ought to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. We ought to get away of that vengeful Old Testament God. And, and Tertullian writes this in response, God can only be completely good if he's the enemy of the bad. So as to put his love of good into action by hatred of the bad and discharge his stewardship of the good by overthrowing of the bad. God is a holy God, and, and this is a fact, and it's because he's also a loving God that he also hates sin and wickedness. It is God's love and his goodness which necessitate, necessitates his wrath and judgment. Uh, Nineveh was a wicked place. And God's wrath and judgment were coming. And that was Jonah's message. From the book of Nahum, which is about the, the eventual judgment and destruction of Nineveh, this is all the sense that is listed against Nineveh. They were plotting against God. They were full of idolatry. They were full of vile behavior and evil behavior. They were guilty of shedding blood, lying, and plundering. They were in, in enslaving other nations. They were presumptuous, cruel. They had an imperial greed which displayed itself in the theft of, uh, of other, uh, I think that's peoples. Assyria uh, even lured weaker nations to their ruin only to be carried away into the lion's den. So these are all quotes from, from Nahum. And Nineveh's Perhaps greatest sin is that they were a persecutor and oppressor of God's people. So God's a holy God. It's a fact. And because he's a holy God, he, he hates sin and he hates wickedness. And he will not let wickedness go unpunished. And 
and I believe in our own day, we really do need to recover this message because we too are living in an evil and wicked age. When I looked at that list of sins that Nahum uh, listed, uh, I had to think of our own contemporary society and our own context. If we think that we in the West uh, are better than other countries because we are wealthy and advanced and civilized, um, I want to challenge that notion today. We, we like to look at other nations like North Korea or, or Russia or something and say, well, we're really not uh, as bad as them. But the reality is we're part of a corrupt system. We in the West are an oppressive people to the rest of the world. We all benefit from Western dominance, each one of us sitting in this room, from the clothes we wear to the phones uh, that our faces are glued to to the cars that we drive. Each citizen of Germany, for example, has the equivalent of 11 slaves making our products for us globally. We are beneficiaries of a corrupt system. The wealthiest fifth of nations, right, dispose of 84% of the world's combined GNP. Its citizens account for 84% of the world trade and possesses 85% of savings in domestic bank accounts. You know, in the 60s, there was this great optimism and, and hope that poverty, poverty would be eliminated with uh, correct agricultural programs and loan sh sh schemes. But since the 1960s, the gap between the richest and poorest fifth of the nations has doubled. The United Nations Development Program reports that over the past three decades, only 15 countries, you could probably guess which ones they are, experienced a high growth rate, while 89 countries are now worse off than they were uh, 10 years ago. And in 70 of the poorest and most developing countries, the present income levels are less than they were in the 60s. So if we are to honestly examine ourselves and say that we have some moral righteousness above any other country, uh, we've, we've lost that ship a long ago when we turned our back on God, right? These statistics and these, these trends are a result of power and greed that has become unchecked. If God's a God of justice, and, and I believe he is, then I think I can say confidently that judgment is coming. But not only is our sin one of socioeconomic injustice, but just take a moment to consider the moral state of the Western world. In Germany, 70% of Germans claim to be Christian, yet less than five are in church on a Sunday morning. According to a recent survey, 23% of the population in Germany describe themselves as non-religious or even atheistic. So that means every third person in Germany describes himself as uh, an atheist. Only China, of all the nations in the world, only China has more non-religious people than Germany. This is our context. Germany, in Germany, one in four women suffer sexual abuse. One in five children suffer some type of physical abuse or neglect, and this has tripled since the 60s. Around 73 million abortions take place worldwide each year, and that three out of 10 of all pregnancies end in an abortion. 
And since the 70s, we can compare the skyrocketing rates of moral decline, drug and alcohol addictions, broken families, divorce rates, adultery, media consumption, social isolation, mental health disorders, all have grown at exponential rates like ever intense birth pains. And what's the, what's the product of these societal sins? Well, look at our younger generation, these, these kids that are leading our service are suffering under the sins of their parents. You have a, a generation that the, the Gen Zs, so those born after 1996, 25 and under, look at just some of these statistics and, and the effect it's having, our, our society is having on the younger generation. 40% of Gen Zers, so that's 10 to 25 year olds, have a diagnosed mental health condition. Most of it is anxiety and depression. On average, they spend 10 hours on their phone. 57% are on some type of medication to treat a mental health condition. And a third of Gen Zs are being raised without a relationship with their father. And I would probably say another third might have fathers, but they're disengaged or absent. So if we really want to see the fruit and the product of the decisions that we make as individuals and collectively as a society, you have to look at how it's affecting the next generation. Gen Z represents an entire generation suffering from the self-centeredness and materialism of their parents. And if God is a God of justice, and I believe he is, then based on this, I can say judgment is coming. And so we have to wake up to the reality that God is a holy God who will not let sin go unpunished and unchecked. Jonah had been given a prophetic message to give to Nineveh, but church, we also have been given a prophetic message, have we not? Repent and turn from your wicked ways, and God will come near to you. He'll heal your land. He'll heal your families. He'll heal your own broken hearts. Is this not a message of grace? Jesus Christ has taken God's wrath upon himself and he offers you a new life. The judgment and wrath that we deserved, Christ has taken upon his own shoulders and the blessing of sonship he offers us in the message of forgiveness of our sins. That's a prophetic message that has been given and entrusted to the church. We have been given the spirit of prophecy and a prophetic message for the nations. Repent and turn back to the Lord. That's the prophetic message entrusted to each and every one of you. In Jeremiah 18, the the Lord explains to the prophet Jeremiah what exactly a prophetic ministry is and the message that every prophet is given. And he says that if at any time I, the Lord, declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. You know, prophecy is not some magic trick where we get to tell people their future. Prophecy is not telling tomorrow's headlines today. But prophecy in scripture is speaking the truth about God's coming judgment and wrath. But at the same time, offering God's grace and mercy through repentance. Prophecy is calling people back to the Lord, whether on a national or a personal level. 
And Jonah had a message for Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But here's the twist. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Jonah's message of this coming wrath was also a message of grace and mercy. It was a chance. It was a second chance. The people of Nineveh believed God and they turned from their sins. And if you go down to read at the end of chapter 3, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring destruction that he had threatened. God's mercy is seen clearest upon the backdrop of his wrath and anger towards wickedness. God is in his very nature a God of grace and mercy. And that's why Jonah went the opposite direction in chapter 4. Right after this, Jonah whines to God. But Jonah, this grace that God, that, that God showed to the Ninevites, Jonah said, oh, man. He says, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You know, so we've laid out the dark canvas of God's wrath and judgment. Sorry for visitors if you're like, what is it? Um, yeah, but let's turn and lay out the jewels of God's grace now upon the table, the splendor of these diamonds. God sent Jonah to Nineveh because God loves Nineveh, and God loves you. God loved this wicked people, and because he made them, and because he created them for his own glory, that they might worship him. At the end of chapter 4, while Jonah is still upset with the Lord for showing grace to this people, the Lord says to Jonah, and should I have not concern for this great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? God loves Nineveh. I mean, this is an amazing part of Scripture. God in his own nature is a God of love and mercy. And because he loves you, he has a burning anger towards that which destroys you which destroys your marriages, which destroys your lives. And so this message of judgment is actually the loving hand of a merciful God. He could have left Nineveh to its own resources. He could have just brought his judgment upon them without warning. But because he's a God of mercy and grace, he sends Nineveh a prophet, Jonah. Jonah knew a thing or two about God's grace. If you go back to Jonah 3, Observe how this sentence in the first verse of, of chapter 3 is just soaking in God's mercy. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. God is the God of second chances. Remember how God has pursued Jonah through the storm, how he rescues Jonah through the fish, and now despite Jonah's rebellion, God reinstates him as a prophet a prophet has one job, and that's to do what God says, and he wouldn't do it. But God shows mercy to Jonah so that Jonah might be able to show mercy to the Ninevites. Jonah knew a thing or two about God's grace. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
And so Jonah arose. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So God's grace is so abundantly kind and loving towards sinners. And that's really the underlying message of the whole Bible, of every passage of Scripture, really. God is gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. When Nineveh heard this message, they believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And next week, we're going to look at, well, no, in two weeks, I have two weeks off, uh, we'll be looking at what repentance looks like. But at this point, we can see that the splendor of God's grace shines brightest in that background of real hatred for sin and wickedness. And the Ninevites knew their sin. And so the Ninevites turned from their sins. They turned towards God. And what did they find? But they found a God that was pursuing them, that was chasing after them through Jonah and through the word that God gave to Jonah. And so as we we close this morning, I want you to know that God is pursuing you as well. One day you will stand before this holy God, each of us. And when you stand in the presence of pure goodness, pure holiness, and absolute purity, it will not do to, to sheepishly hold up your good deeds and your good intentions. When we stand before God like this, we can't compare ourselves to others and say, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. In the pure light of God's goodness, any hint of evil or sin in our hearts is going to be exposed. And all that's hidden is going to be brought to light. Jesus said in in John 3, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I want to tell you something because I love you. If you do not turn from your wicked ways, if you do not repent from your self-sufficiency and sins, then you too will only know God as your judge. And there's a real hell that we will go to. But today, in the preaching of this message, you can know God as Savior and Redeemer. And that's the message that Christ came proclaiming. Oh, what wonderful news it is that Jesus has taken your place. That Jesus was born uh, the wrath that God, uh, uh, that you deserved. Jesus experienced the judgment due to fall on you and on me. And he offers us this wonderful new life where the dirty are made clean, where the broken are made whole, where the depressed become joyous, where the addicted become free, the bitter and angry become peaceful and patient. I've seen it. I've seen it. God is a God of second chances. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God's grace changes everything. I've seen marriages restored. 
I've seen addictions broken. I've seen hearts made new and lives changed. And no one, no one is beyond the wonderful new life which God offers us in Jesus Christ. The Ninevites believed God and they turned from their sins and they turned toward God and God showed them grace. And he willed to you as well.